You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD+, even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD+, risk-free, for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. Today's cool fact of the day is that for thousands of years, Amazon natives have been making ayahuasca, which is a psychedelic that they've used in their medicine ceremonies and something that I first used almost 20 years ago in the Peruvian forest with a, uh, with a shaman. What you probably don't know is that of the 40,000 plant species they could have chosen, somehow they knew to mix the ayahuasca vine and leaves from a shrub to make the medicine. And the ayahuasca vine has chemicals known as monoamine oxidase inhibitors that let your body absorb the DMT from the leaves. Without this inhibitor, the DMT would be destroyed by the digestive stuff in your gut and you'd feel no effects from the DMT at all. Uh, the natives say the plants revealed to them how to make the ayahuasca. So, so literally, if you ask a, a well-trained shaman, they'll say, well, the plants talk to me and tell me what to use, which is pretty darn profound. Either that or they're all crazy. You also have to ask yourself, how did a crazy person pick one out of 40,000 shrubs? Hmm, that doesn't sound crazy to me. It sounds interesting and worthy of scientific discourse. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body. Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash dave for a seven-day free trial. 
Today's guest is, uh, is well known. He's Dr. Dennis McKenna, a founding board member of the Hefter Research Institute, an ethnopharmacologist, a research pharmacognosist, a lecturer, and an author, and one of the leading experts in the therapeutic uses of psychoactive medicines derived from nature. He's a key organizer and participant in the Hawaska Project, an international biomedical study of ayahuasca in Brazil. He's a legendary biohacker and a brother of the well-known Terence McKenna. Dennis, welcome to the show. It's an honor to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm glad we got those factual issues straightened out ahead of the show. <laughs> what, what you guys don't know, because we, we took it out of the cool fact of the day, is that when I was first reading the cool fact of the day, and I prepare ahead of time with notes, uh, and I work with the Bulletproof team to make sure that I've got the notes right, and in my head, for years, I've had which of the plant compounds are mixed in ayahuasca. I had it backwards. So I, I was under the impression that the DMT molecule was in the ayahuasca vine and the MAOIs were in the shrub. I had it backwards. So I'm reading this going, wait, this is backwards. I can't read this. Oh, how embarrassing. And the dentist steps up and is like, uh, Dave, actually, that was right and you're wrong. I'm like, all right, I've just been schooled by like one of the most badass psychopharmacologists, uh, hallucinogen experts out there. I, 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 I can live with that. So thank you for the correction, Dennis. That You're was, welcome. We, we can funny. sort all this out as we get into this. I we, imagine we will want to. We can indeed. And, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to this interview because you and I got a chance to talk uh, a few months ago about ibogaine research. And ibogaine is another hallucinogen that's really had a profound effect on addiction in particular. So when I realized from that conversation, I'm like, wow, we, we should talk. Like, like lots of people would like to hear what we would chat about. So this is our chance to do that. And, and to get going, I want to know, how did you get into this stuff? Like, was there something about your childhood? Like, like what, what made you spend your life studying <laughs> these kind of bizarre medicines that most people don't know anything about? Well, I think multiple factors. I'd have to say, I'd have to credit my brother or blame my brother, depending on how you want to see it, you know, because he was four years ahead of me in age, and he was always into the cool stuff. And, you know, <laughs> that's just an age where the little brother wants, whatever big brother's doing, he wants in, right? The little brother, and my brother was really into always doing interesting things. So, and he was obviously brilliant and, and driven. So, uh, you know, so I really credit him and, and also the sort of zeitgeist of the age because this was the 60s and we were children of the 60s. And my brother was living in Berkeley, uh, you know, uh, in the late 60s after he graduated from high school, he went to Berkeley. He wanted to be at the epicenter of where the action was, and and so I was influenced by all that. And we were we were you know LSD was what was the psychedelic of the of the day, if you will. Everyone was taking LSD. It was a time of social ferment and turmoil. The Vietnam War was going on. It was a very turbulent time, and uh, you know when we were right in the middle of it. And we were kind of nerdy, I guess. I mean, we didn't even have that word at that time. But Terry and I, Terrence and I, were interested in outrageous things. You know, we were big science fiction fanatics. We read in esoteric philosophy and alchemy, all of these things. So when psychedelics came along, 
it was right up our alley. I mean, we could not not get interested in it, and and we did, and we. You know, uh, Terrence, again, leading the way, introduced me to some of these psychedelics. Uh, I mean, the first time introduced me to cannabis one summer when he came back from Berkeley full of all these radical ideas with a very pretty girlfriend and, and you know, a, a bag full of, what was, you know, cannabis, which we probably couldn't give away in today's market. You know, but it did the trick. We just went over to the park, which was across from our house, and sat down and toked up. And that was really my first encounter with a, you know, with a psychedelic, psychoactive substance that was not alcohol. Uh, you know, and uh, I've had I had my first serious encounter with alcohol less than a week previously. Didn't like that at all. And when I took cannabis, I realized. This is my drug. This is much more <laughs> compatible with, uh, you know, what I like. And then, so I was curious about all these things, and he was, and we were, you know, in correspondence. You know, by this time, and that, you know, these were letters. We didn't have internet in those days. We were in correspondence. We'd gotten past all of this sibling rivalry that, uh, you know, brothers sometimes have. We were now friends and colleagues and fellow explorers of the fringes, I guess, of uh, of everything, of culture and so on. So I went out to California in 1967, uh, the summer of 67, which was the summer of love, supposedly, and he was living in Berkeley. So we had a place to, to go. Uh, my friend and I, why my father allowed this to happen, I still have no idea because he, you know, he had to know that from his perspective, it probably wasn't going to go well. But, but anyway, he let me go out there. And so in that summer, we discovered, my friend and I, thanks to Terrence's intercession, we discovered LSD uh, was really our first psychedelic experience. Uh, but it wasn't too long before uh, we discovered DMT. Uh, Terrence had told me about DMT when he'd come back that summer to turn me on to cannabis. Uh, but he hadn't brought any. And he just described it as the ultimate metaphysical reality pill. You know, well, of course, it's not a pill, as we know, because it's, uh, you know, not orally active. It's something that was smoked. The synthetic version was smoked. Anyway, minor detail. When Terrence and I discovered, or when Terrence discovered DMT and, you know, shared that with me, we both decided that that was just amazing, that it was not just the most amazing drug we'd taken, you know, and our experience was actually pretty limited, it was just the most amazing thing we'd ever encountered in our limited universe. Uh, so we decided to throw everything else away and focus on that because we said, in our minds, this was the most important discovery that man had ever made. Uh, you know, 45 years on, I really haven't changed my mind much about that. <laughs> So DMT probably wasn't that common back in 67. I, I don't know. This was five years before I was born. 
What, was this something you could get, or did you guys have some university hookup? It, it, yeah, it, it was hard to get. I mean, but Terrence, you know, he lived in Berkeley, which was kind of the okay. center of all this, and he worked the Matrix. You know, he had he had that where he had connections and so on. He was able to come up with DMT, with synthetic DMT, which was something that you smoked in a glass pipe like it, crack. It's, right? it's still hard to get, right? <laughs> That's uh, becoming more easier to get, largely because Terrence's, you yeah. know, talks and so on have made it more well known. It's it's easier to get now than it is then, you know. And what you got then was just you know this horrible sloppy synthesis. You got this orange, smelly uh, sort of uh, amorphous paste. Yeah. Uh, not not great quality, but it did the trick, you know. So for people listening, uh, DMT is the active ingredient in ayahuasca, and uh, it's also known as the spirit molecule. There's a, a well-known book about university research at UNM using mm-hmm. this, where they actually like quantified and measured the experiences of, of people, and, and it appears to have some healing effects. You could put it that way. Um, the stuff I've seen now is is more of like a, a white a white crystalline sort of thing, and it. Uh, it also can be snorted instead of just smoked. Uh, yeah. I would encourage anyone listening who's never done DMT, uh, if you are going to choose to do this, uh, don't mess around. <laughs> like have have experienced people who know uh, know how to take care and and to to watch you and and to keep you safe because this is not uh, not something that I would uh, that I would trifle with. <laughs> just right. to put it to put it that way, like like it, it's it's big medicine. You could say, um, yeah. And essentially, the same considerations apply to any psychedelic, yeah, especially with yeah. a, a big psychedelic like uh, like DMT or LSD or yeah. even mushrooms. Pay attention to set and setting. You know, assure that you're in a safe place. Assure that maybe there's someone with more experience there who can not necessarily even be in the same room, but be close. You know, just common sense measures so that you can focus on the experience and not the external world you know i would go one step further and say if you're going to do a hallucinogen like this uh set and setting and intention matter uh have someone who's a trained shaman (laughs) or really understands the 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 more emotional spiritual unseen world with you just because it can't hurt and it probably could do some good right it can't hurt uh in the case of dmt i don't know that it makes a difference in a certain way because it's so short. It's so short acting. That's one of the things about it, and that's one of the key differences between DMT and ayahuasca. Yeah. When you take DMT orally, the the experience is stretched out over several hours. When you smoke DMT, twenty minutes. You know, from baseline to baseline. So it's very fast, and it's very overwhelming when you take it that way. Astonishing, I'd say. But in some t- sometimes you can't. It's difficult to come back with much, other than a sense of astonishment, and like, what was that? You know, uh, so it's impressive. But I think when DMT is taken orally, and that would be the way most people in indigenous cultures would encounter it, it's it's pretty different. You know, it doesn't have the intensity, but it has more depth. I would say. And more healing, more healing effects that way. That, that's a, a fair way, a fair way to describe it. There's a, uh, there are people out there who would say that you know the the whole LSD and and DMT and and the whole like 
psychedelic culture which was created by government people looking to destabilize society and MK Ultra and all that sort of stuff. Uh, CIA, like, what, what's the what, what's your experience with that stuff? Is there anything to that? I mean, there, there's reams of evidence I've seen from people like this. I, I'm not sure that it matters, but well, you were there. Like, like, like well, were there, were I there guys think... in black suits and sunglasses? Like, like, what was that like? <laughs> no, I no, I think that uh, that's a meme that uh, you know, a misinformation that's been sort of deliberately propagated. I mean, I would have to say, you know, if the CIA deliberately you know, release these psychedelics in, into society to destabilize, you know, or I, I mean, what would be the purpose of that, you know, to destabilize society? In uh, some sense, you know, society was already in turmoil when this uh, stuff happened. And and then the other, the other aspect is that, you know, these things have been used indigenously for thousands of years. They were only new to us in the 60s, you know, when it began to, come to the attention of mass mass consciousness or mass uh, media <laughs> but uh, you know these are all part of the traditions that are thousands of years old and I don't think I mean I don't think the government had any more idea than anyone else what the social consequences of these these psychedelics you know escaping into the culture were I don't think they had any you know, there was no plot. I think they were as surprised as everyone. You know, I mean, I, I am not a believer in conspiracy theories by and large because, you know, my feeling, I mean, my, my approach to it is nobody knows what's going on. The idea with the conspiracy theory is somebody knows what's going on. Actually, no, nobody has a clue. <laughs> uh, I, I find that most things that are, are labeled as conspiracy theories are emergent behaviors. Uh, from many, many micro decisions that, that are made. So they, they look pretty bad. And every now and then there really are bad people doing bad things. But Oh, I, of, course. I, of course. I can tell you if, if bad people thought they were going to get an advantage by introducing hallucinogens into society, I, I think their plan would, it, I would say it probably backfired. Uh, but there are, there are people, so. people who listen to Bulletproof Radio and, and friends who would, who would rabidly disagree with that. And I'm not saying that I know, but I, I'll, I'll talk about my experiences and, and the incredible healing that I, I've seen um, many people uh, experience using hallucinogens in a in a healing setting, not at Disneyland. Like I, mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I don't think mm -hmm. that's particularly a wise use of these things, uh, and I don't think they're for kids and, and you know they're not for parties, um, but uh, um, they certainly have some power. Uh, yeah. um, tell me about what happened when you went with your brother Terence to La Chorrera. I I'm always reluctant to discuss this uh, on okay. on podcasts because. It's difficult to explain. I mean, even 40 years later, it's difficult to explain. That's one reason why I wrote this book. And mm -hmm. If I could mention it, I yeah, will. Yeah, please, please plug your book. Both your listeners okay. love to well, read. It's called The Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss. Uh -huh. I even have a copy here. I don't know if you can see it. Yeah, Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss. My Life with Terrence McKenna. So that is my memoir. And... Those people who know Terence's writing will recognize this as a sequel to, in some ways, uh, his book called True Hallucinations, which focuses much more on our adventures in the Amazon at La Chirera. And uh, why did we go to the Amazon and to La Chirera in 1971? Well, this is part of this story about DMT. We decided 
that seriously that there was nothing going on societally or in terms of our career or anything else that was more important than DMT. We thought, you know, really this maybe is a signal from an alien civilization we didn't know. But we, you know, it was related to our frustration in some ways that the DMT experience was so short. So we actually found out, we researched the literature. Nobody knew at that time that ayahuasca contained DMT. The ethnobotany was still being sorted out. But we discovered a, a reference to uh, another preparation used by the Witoto Indians, which were based in La Chirera, southern Colombia, called Ukuhe. They called it Ukuhe. And it was an orally active preparation made from the sap of these trees that belonged to the genus Varola, members of the nutmeg family. Well, other tribes all through the Amazon, well, northern Venezuela and, and, uh, and, and Colombia make snuffs out of related trees. So they get around that MAO inhibition thing by making it into a snuff. And we knew all that when the ethnobotany had been studied. And then uh, this paper surfaced about an oral preparation involving Varola. And we thought, aha, maybe this is, maybe this will be an oral, you know, an orally active form. Maybe we can spend more time in this dimension, in this place, and understand better what is going on. So that was the sort of the, uh, you know, quasi-scientific motive, I guess you could say, for us to go down there in search of this rare drug that no white man, as far as we know, had ever taken. So we went to La Chirera. We went where the action was. Now, what actually happened, and if you read Terence's book or my book, when we got to La Chirera, and that's a whole uh, story in itself, how we got there, when we got to La Chirera, we had met a anthropologist on the way in who's studying the Witoto. We knew he was there. We expected to encounter him. We'd been told in Bogota that you know he was with his people, so we did encounter him. And he was utterly appalled. <laughs> number one, that we'd showed up, you know, and and this was you know I mean we were every bit as colorful as any of the tribes. I mean we were <laughs> we were a wild looking bunch. We could have stepped right out of. Uh, any any street corner in Haight Ashbury's, you know, we had beards down to here, we had bells, we had bangles, you know, we were a colorful tribe on our own right. But so we showed up, we told him what we were after, and he again he was appalled. I mean, it was like, how do you even know about this? You know, you're not supposed to discuss this. This is this is madness. You know, you can't go in there and ask for this thing you know well it turns out he was a little paranoid eventually but we said okay yeah whatever doc you know and then <laughs> then we went on to La Chirera. but we said okay we'll be cool so we got to La Chirera and we said well we'll just hang out until the right the moment seems appropriate we can ask somebody about her kuhei maybe they can lead us to it La Chirera was a place that it was a mission village Forest around the village had been cleared. Maybe a couple hundred acres had been turned into pasture. So there were Cebu cattle there. And the Cebu cattle, the preferred substrate for Psilocybe cubensis, which is the pan-tropical, big, golden cap, 
psilocybin mushroom, they were literally everywhere in the pasture, you know, and we knew what they were. And because uh, we'd done our homework, we had very little experience with them, but we kind of knew what they were. And we thought, oh, great, you know, <laughs> we can have fun with these while we're waiting for Ukuhe, you know, the real mystery to emerge. And uh, so we said, well, great, we have lots of cannabis. We have Stropharia, we have Stropharia cubensis, as it was called back then. So, uh, you know, we're good. We can just hang out and enjoy these very nice non-toxic psychedelics and, and see what emerged. Well, it quickly emerged that um, the mushrooms, not ukuhe, when we eventually found ukuhe, it was disappointing. It wasn't really that spectacular. But we started eating mushrooms, you know, on a very casual basis and not really paying attention <laughs> <laughs> and things quick and, and often, right? Because we didn't have all that much to eat. Uh, the food we brought was inadequate. And you can make quite a nice bowl of soup or omelet with uh, psilocybin <laughs> mushrooms. Good God. <laughs> so we were consuming them kind of pretty much all the time. And uh, it quickly got pretty weird, <laughs> you know? Uh, and it started uh, suggesting... Um, you know, it stimulated conversation for sure yeah. among us, and it started sort of presenting all these ideas that were what my brother liked to call funny ideas, very unconventional ideas about things you could do to essentially operate on yourself to uh, do a kind of psychosurgery on your DMT, DNA, sorry, <laughs> and and we did those things and uh, we did what the mushroom told us to do. And it was very much like being instructed by some intelligent entity. And in our reference frame at that time, we pretty much assumed that it was either the mushroom or something being channeled through the mushroom that was telling us to do this biophysical experiment that was supposed to transform our... DNA in a very special way. Um, I'm not going to go any further into, well, except to say that, you know, so we, we, we conceived an experiment and we performed the experiment. What we predicted could happen could not possibly happen because it violated the laws of physics and, and every other law, of, you know, of decency and whatever. I mean, it could not happen. But we had sort of talked ourselves into a, I guess, a cognitive corner where something had to happen when we did this experiment. What happened was that we both had a simultaneous uh, uh, altered state uh, episode that lasted a couple of weeks. And, uh, and, you know, the predictions of the experiment didn't come true, but this was, it was like something had to give. And what gave was, you know, our, uh, our grasp on reality, you know, uh, mine in particular. And, uh, you know, and I fully recovered, I hope. Uh, and uh, as far as I know, and, uh, and, and so that was the experiment. I don't want to go into detail because we don't have enough time. Sure. 
and I want you to read my book, and you know, yeah, it's no, all I, I, unpacked there in quite a I, bit of detail. It's a very lot hard of, to explain. Uh, just based on uh, just based on that, a lot of people listening to Bulletproof Radio today will, will want to pick up your book, The Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss, and read what what is like one of the the stories about very pioneering work in in psychedelics. Uh, and, uh, and and very fascinating, just just from a historical perspective. Not to mention, if if you're interested in uh, in pursuing this this kind of uh, this kind of medicine, I think uh, it, it's worth understanding where it came from, and uh, at least where it came from in the West. Yeah, I think the uh, one of the take home lessons from from our adventure there and the experiment at La Chirera was, uh, uh, you know, we really were clueless. I mean, we thought we knew <laughs> yeah. much less. It's almost uh, an example of how not to approach these things. Yes. You know, we were lucky. We learned a lot. I would not suggest that anyone else take that approach. You know, study up. Know what you're doing before you get into this. Uh, and, you know, we, we didn't, but we learned quickly. So, Someone has to step off the cliff sometimes. I, exactly. Uh, I, I understand and, and respect that. You mentioned a couple of times you know, the mushrooms or, or the plants could be channeling some kind of intelligence or you know messages from aliens. Forty years later, what's your what's your verdict? <laughs> <sighs> well, I, you know, I wish I know. I wish I knew. I still have not figured that out. You know, uh, because it certainly seems often with uh, mushrooms, with uh, ayahuasca with uh, these other you know profound psychedelics it often seems uh that you're in touch with an intelligence that is not you maybe it's a part of you that is presenting as not you Mm -hmm. that would be the reductionist perspective maybe it actually is a different intelligence it's either the plant or or something that speaks through the plant and i don't think we can decide you know i don't think even neuroscience can decide this is a this is a difficult question you know and it goes to some of the you know most fundamental uh issues about what is the nature of reality and what is the nature of our perception of reality you know is the brain something that takes information in is is it is it a detector or a generator of consciousness you know, the brain. I, I think it's partly both, but I think that, uh, you know, the brain takes information in from the environment, combines it with, you know, associated processes, and essentially generates a hallucination that we call reality. That's the hallucination that we live in. And, uh, you know, it's partly at least synthesized by our neural machinery. You know, that's what the brain does. It's a reality generator. It generates a model of reality that we can inhabit, and it makes more sense than reality itself, which, you know, physics tells us it doesn't look anything like what we think of as reality. You know, it's mostly empty space and energy fields and all this stuff. So the brain is an organ that enables us to construct uh, a model of reality, which is another way of saying... A hallucination or a dream or a movie. I mean, it, it writes the movie. We are the producers, directors, and stars of our own movie, you know, as is everyone. And so I, I don't think we can really answer that question. What I would say is if 
this information is coming from something outside in another dimension or whatever, that pretty much uh, throws into question everything we think we understand about the way the world is. And, you know, we've got a lot of explaining to do. We have to, fu- we have to examine f- some fundamental assumptions about uh, how the world is. You know, and, and this, is, uh, this is a problem for we Westerners who are, you know, steeped in science, tend to incline toward reductionism. And, you know, of course, indigenous people are it's like, well, well, you know, what did you think it was? <laughs> you know, I mean, they're just kind of matter of fact about it. Yeah, this is it. And that's that's what we experience. So. If you if you look at like what Stan Groff did, and, and for for listeners, uh, Stan Groff, uh, it wrote books about the holotropic universe, and he treated ten thousand patients with LSD as a licensed uh, mm-hmm. psychiatrist, and had mm-hmm. profound healing effects. I, I've actually done now. He, he uses a type of breathing that makes you hallucinate when LSD was made illegal, and I've actually done his breathing exercises with him personally when he was in his late eighties, uh, and. Uh, what he mapped out was was profound, and that you know, he, there's people. When you look at the statistics, when lots of people do hallucinogens or go into altered states, even without any sort of chemical assistance, they right. generally see the same kinds of things. And I've, mm-hmm. I've looked into the work of other uh, other groups, like International Association of Consciousness out of Brazil, and and these people are are they're mapping things out the way scientists do, and saying, well, if you take a statistic of you know. 50,000 people who went on a, on a journey, whether or not it was a meditation-driven or chemical-driven, uh, they're finding the same things, and they're seeing the same things, and they're, they're drawing pictures of these things and describing them in intimate, intricate detail that's familiar to other people who've been there. I don't know. That, that looks very scientific to me, and I, I, I'm a huge fan of, of measurement and of using science uh, to look at the question of consciousness instead of to look away from it and to and to explain it away, which has been yeah. the paradigm. And, and, and your experiment in the jungle back then, and, and a lot of your work and your your brother's work over time, has the next generation of scientists just openly doing what what happened in the seventeen well, hundreds. Prohibited back yeah. in the day. Now it's almost legitimate. It's yeah, it's almost. getting there. It's getting there. <laughs> but but you and I are on the same page that way. I am not anti-scientific, right? Yeah. Uh, I think measurement and scientific verification, these are, science is a powerful tool. One thing that psychedelics will, you know, sort of make, put front and center is how limited science is in terms of its methodology and in terms of, you know, what there is to know versus the little tiny slice of reality that science can say, well, we've, we've got it figured out here. No, science only has a tiny part of reality figured out. It, and, you know, even that is subject to, to question because it's always subject to question. If science is done properly, you're always, you know, trying to invalidate your models, right? Trying to find out what will invalidate my theory or my understanding or how can I revise it to be better, to better account for the data. So science is good, but it's limited, and especially when it comes to these types of inner experiences, you know. I mean, it's, so I I think, I mean, Terrace was much more like, 
he was much more dismissive of science than I am. He was like, he was, his position was science will never really figure this out. So what good is it? And I, I, my <laughs> position is, okay, let's not be too hasty. It might figure it out or it might figure out some part of it. Uh, but there's a lot to be uh, known. And, uh, you know, we have to be cognizant of the limits. And I think one of the, for me, the take-home lesson often from psychedelics is just a reminder of how limited our knowledge sphere is, you know, no matter how, how it grows, there's always more, you know, to be known than we actually know or have consensus on. So that's an important, uh, that's an important, uh, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't try to understand it. And science can carry us a certain distance in that direction. When did you realize that you could use psychedelics therapeutically and, and not just recreationally? Like at, at some point, you, you must have come to that, that conclusion that people were, were healing or changing from these. Well, yeah, I have seen it, I mean, again, from my own experience. I mean, even though, uh, you know, when we went to La Chirera, we had these incredible experiences that were, you know, uh, I mean, probably very dangerous in some ways. We're probably lucky that we came out, you know, both alive and still relatively sane. Uh, but that said, you know, looking back on it uh, from the perspective of 45 years or whatever, I don't regret it for a minute. I feel that it was a very healing experience for me, you know, and uh, you can apply a couple of uh, models to it if you want. Well, it was a prolonged psychosis. Okay, it was a prolonged psychosis. Uh, I prefer to say, think of it as a shamanic initiation. Yeah. Uh, although I'm not a shaman. I, I'm the last person to say I'm a shaman, but I, it had all the stages of shamanic initiation. And the ultimate thing being that after, it, after I reintegrated, I was a stronger, better, wiser, and certainly more humble person than I was when I went into it. So it, I don't recommend that people should go out and take overdoses of mushrooms and have no. you know prolonged psychoses. But I guess for me personally, that's the, I realized this was actually a beneficial thing that happened to me. If it had been interrupted, and there were people in our party who were, you know, appalled at what was going on and thought we should get to the nearest mental institution as quickly as possible, being in the Amazon, that wasn't possible. So we were lucky. I mean, Terrence and I, we knew what was going on. We thought we did, and and the process was able to. Uh, you know, unfold in its own time and eventually resolve. And I think that was ultimately healing. As far as in general, the, the healing, the, the therapeutic potential of psychedelics, it was pretty thoroughly uh, explored in the 60s using primarily LSD before all that research was shut down. You know, for alcoholism and depression and uh, a number of different things. And it's taken uh, 40 years or so to come back to that, you know, because the, the research was promising. The research protocols were maybe not as rigorous as they are now, but the results were clear. They were unambiguous that here's a substance that could potentially help many people with 
various, uh, you know, a whole spectrum of uh, psychological problems. And then the research was shut down. It was like a spasm of hysteria that sort of swept through society. Decisions made by politicians regarding scientific and medical issues, in my opinion, that that's always dangerous because they're usually, you know, willfully ignorant about about all those topics, you know, and uh, they should have good advice, and they didn't. It was it was the decisions were not made for sound reasons. It was a reaction to societal hysteria, you know. So the research, which was promising, was shut down, and it took a long time to reopen it and take a more sober look at it. And really, that started in the early '90s with Rick Strassman's, you know, pioneering work on DMT. But then that kind of opened the door a crack, and then more recent research, good rigorous protocols, good data. Uh, you know, I wouldn't say it's a floodgate, but there's a lot more work going on now, and actually, psychedelics are. Uh, you know, emerging as something that is, uh, you know, very promising uh, for treatment of PTSD and addiction and intractable depression, OCD, even, uh, you know, possibly, uh, you know, migraine headache. Well, that that's pretty clear. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so the therapeutic potential is clear. The challenge is how to take these substances, which have long been reviled, and prohibited, how do you reintegrate them into medicine? You know, if they have better properties, you know, and, and, and frankly, uh, mental health care, psychiatry, in biomedicine, the way it's practiced today is kind of a joke, uh, in my opinion, in that it heavily relies on psychopharmaceuticals. Mm-hmm. You know, it's entirely, uh, you know, drug-based. The psychopharmaceuticals just don't work very well, you know. And psychedelics work much better for many many of these things, but there is no revenue model. Who, What, what pharmaceutical company is going to develop a drug like psilocybin, which maybe you take three or four times in your life, you know, versus another drug that you take four times a day for the rest of your life, right? That's their revenue model. So they have no interest in developing psychedelics as therapeutic medicines. It's got to happen through some other way. Uh, And there has to be, you know, there has to be a regulatory response, so change in the regulatory framework, because these psychedelics are classified as Schedule I controlled substances, right up there with heroin and you know, all the uh, most dangerous drugs, they're classified as no medical value. That's number one, inherently dangerous, can't be used safely, all of that stuff. None of which it, uh, is actually true. It's probably not going to happen in, in, in a big way in, in the U.S. because the regulatory bodies are very heavily influenced by the pharmaceutical companies. But if you're in running an emerging economy country, <laughs> if you're Cuba... Or maybe you're you're running China and you want to get an unfair advantage. I, there's definitely uh, what we'll call it medical tourism for these things that, that's yeah. happening. Yeah. And uh, I would be surprised if some countries didn't benefit unfairly 
by opening up their laws. And I say unfairly, it's perfectly fair. They, they have more flexible legal systems that let people control their biology the way they want. Cool. People yeah. go there and spend money <laughs> and then their own populations benefit and they cut their healthcare costs and things like that. Right. Uh, or maybe they have, you know, uh, civil war and rebellion. I just right. don't think so. Like that doesn't appear to be what happens when people start healing their traumas using hallucinogenic plant medicines well, that have been around for thousands it is, of years. It, it is true that psychedelics are, you know, not only therapeutic for individuals, but used in the right context, they're therapeutic for societies and yeah. ultimately for the whole planet because they do tend to make us more compassionate. They tend to make us better human beings and, and able to kind of step outside our own personal box and appreciate how it is for other people. So this was one of the reasons they wanted to suppress LSD in the 60s, because people were taking LSD and say, you want me to go to Vietnam and kill these people? Why would I want to do that? Well, they can't have, you know, a drug that puts these kind of prohibited thoughts into people's heads. Uh, but I, I would say a couple of things uh, in response to what you said. I wouldn't be too sure that I, there are efforts underway now to legalize or change the schedule status of a couple of these things, MDMA and psilocybin. Like with, with MAPS. And Hefter as well, we're, because we're, we're focused a lot on psilocybin. And so we're quietly working, much more quietly than MAPS, because we tend to be the quiet one. Uh, <laughs> you know, but we are also working to affect a schedule change for psilocybin. So I think within optimistically 10 years or five years, wow. these, these two at least are going to be available to therapists uh, you know, for, for use in, in various protocols. That's going to have a huge impact on psychiatry. In fact, it's going to overturn the yeah. current psychiatric paradigm. That is powerful, powerful work, and I uh, I support your 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 mission there. If you can pull that off in five or ten years, that is that is truly remarkable. And uh, we're seeing we're seeing the public opinion shift, and that has to precede a regulatory change. Right. I do have my concerns about the level of collusion between big pharma and these regulations and these laws. Uh, and that's so, true. We'll, that's we'll true. See. But but the an important aspect of this is that uh, many of these things come from plants, you know, or mushrooms. They come from things that grow in the jungle. You you can't restrict access to these <laughs> things. You can grow them, and in fact. That's a revolutionary act to grow these plants and figure out how to use them and share that knowledge and the plants with other people. So that's a kind of a way to push back against big pharma. And oh yeah. And, and, and then the other thing is is uh, you know the work that the Hefter is doing and Maps is doing. You know our our approach has been well if you do good science that can't be ignored. And they'll have to acknowledge that. So if we do good science and there's, you know, solid data that they have therapeutic effects, they will more or less be forced to uh, approve it for those types of uses. They may not fund it, but they'll have to approve it. 
and that will make a huge difference. It sure has taken a long time for that to work on even simple things like nutrition and, and the, the oh. ketosis diet. Like The book was published the year I was born on ketosis and <laughs> talked about the benefits. Right, right. In 43, I was obese half my life because <laughs> that was never accepted by you know, the powers that be. And that's finally turning, but it seems to be like a 40 or 50 year cycle. Maybe with the internet, it, it's only a five or 10 year cycle because when people talk about it enough, just because you know, they're listening to podcasts, heaven forbid, uh, that they, they may just stand up and say, I'm not willing to wait. Like, I, I don't want to be old when I'm allowed to do this thing that I think might help me with my trauma or whatever else. So I'm, I'm hopeful right. from that front uh, and, and wary of the, the, just the, the level of regulations that are in place for economic reasons and not for my own reasons. Right. And as you point out, there is a kind of a burgeoning medical tourism uh, industry or phenomenon for psychedelics, especially for ayahuasca. Yeah. Many people are going to Peru or other countries to experience it. And that is, uh, that's a two-edged sword, you know, because a lot of these places are, you know, uh, they're not well run and, and, you know, they're not genuine traditions because it's had this economic uh, impact on these societies. And people see that, well, I could hang my shingle out and call myself an ayahuascaro and, Gringos will come down and pay me lots of money, you know. And there, there are good ones. There are traditionally trained, well-trained ones, and many, many uh, who are basically charlatans. Uh, and it's there's no there's no mechanism to sort out which is which. You know, you kind of have to know know the territory. It, it's gotten to the point that the Onion just recently ran a, a spoof about this. I'm, I'm guessing you would have seen it, but yes, you know, I did. Uh, very funny a, and sadly <laughs> very appropriate. <laughs> it's a for for listeners. It's a satire newspaper, and uh, you probably know the Onion because they're famous. But they they ran an article uh, about how they interviewed a, a shaman who was just you know sick and tired of all the tech CEOs coming down to take ayahuasca in their hoodies and Birkenstocks and and generally just completely skewering the whole medical tourism for ayahuasca movement. And I. I, I'm kind of a proponent of that. I, I went down to Peru in, I think it was 99 or, or 97, somewhere in the, the late 90s uh, when I, I did it. And I still have some pictures of it, so I could probably date it from then. But uh, I went down there, and I didn't know I was going to do ayahuasca, but I, I'd, I'd read about it. I was really interested, and I just made a few discreet inquiries. And uh, there wasn't a, a charlatan industry back then because no one wanted it. Right. So uh, eventually, I found the guy, and he showed up, and you know had the the black jaguar obsidian thing, and was a real legitimate jungle shaman. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had a, a really interesting and amazing experience with it. But I think if I went down there now, it's it, w- it would be a very different experience. And and I've learned that you should be really cautious about who you do these things with because you know, your your defenses are down. You're you're basically programmable uh, yeah. when you take yes, these things. Yes, that's and, true. No, you have to be careful now. I mean, there is no no overarching regulatory body, and there's there's reason for there not to be, and there's also a rational argument that there should be some level of regulation. But right now, you're kind of on your own. You know, you need to uh, not... If you go to uh, some place like Iquitos, which is kind of the epicenter of this phenomenon in Peru... You'll be asked two or three times before you get to your hotel and when picked up at the airport, the taxi driver Whoa. will say, do you want to go to an ayahuasca ceremony? And if you say yes, you'll be taken somewhere and there'll be somebody, maybe the brother-in-law <laughs> of the, 
you know, taxi. There's no way to know. You, Holy you, but, crap! I had no idea. Like when oh, I, yeah. I, I had to go to the hotel, and the guy had to like, like, you know, send someone out to the juggle, and like, like it, it was, it was a lot of no, doing. And it, like, why it's does completely this guy out of control, that? in my opinion. I mean, oh, you know, I, it's uh, it's a, it's an interesting phenomenon, David. Uh, I uh, I have mixed feelings about it. I, I can you say. know, I look at this. Partly as an evolutionary biologist, you know, I think what we're seeing here is symbiosis and coevolution with with a teacher plant. I mean, the indigenous people regard ayahuasca as a plant teacher, as they do many of these psychedelics. We're in a sort of a rough, you know, coevolution is not easy, and we're at sort of this rough spot. But it's like ayahuasca is sort of you know, left the jungle and it's gone on to the global stage and it's trying to, you know, I think it, I think it is, I think of it as a kind of ambassador for Gaia, for the Gaian mind, and it's trying to get its message out. And it's getting a little bit hysterical because we're not listening, right? The, the problematic monkeys are not listening. And the message is, you know, we're wrecking the place. And so many people come back with this sort of renewed or rediscovered perspective on, you know, our relationship with nature and how we're losing that. And we have to change our attitude before we can, you know, begin to take steps to avert, uh, you know, all the challenges we face on the environmental level. I would... I would dearly love to to spray ayahuasca on Monsanto's headquarters uh, if sprayed ayahuasca worked. <laughs> it won't work, but I know, there are other approaches to this. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, we, we are destroying the soil, and, and I, uh, I actually believe that there isn't an earth intelligence. Uh, you look I at do what too. roots do, you look at what fungus does in the soil, and, and the soil is a living organism. That right. It, it just is. Right. <laughs> uh, no, the, the whole... Uh, Gaia hypothesis, yeah. which basically came from James, James Lovelock, originally formulated, and it was dismissed when mm -hmm. it came out. Now it turns out, actually, it's it's not woo woo stuff. It's a pretty solid science. You know? There's even a big magnetic field around the planet that, that changes, just like the one around our heads, and it's it's actually yeah. kind of scary when, when you look at it. Like, wow, we're really jacking this thing up, and we have no idea how it works. That's uh, like, true. If you decide to break something and you know how it works, that's one thing, <laughs> because you can probably fix it or change it. Right. Uh, but we're there's a couple of levels of knowledge that we just haven't quite figured out now, even about what's going on in our our, our gut bacteria and in, in the inner workings of our cellular biology. It's exactly. It, it, it's a lot. And funny, you know, people used uh, I believe it was uh, LSD to understand DNA in our cellular biology. Like like we've yes. been using plant medicines to get our, to get knowledge. Steve Jobs, uh, you know, Apple and a lot of these interesting things come about because we're we're using these things as as call them smart drugs or whatever else, but they're they're changing our consciousness and making us more aware of what's around us. And when you pay attention, there is a planet, and it it does have some consciousness that's just not like ours. At least it's not like ours, and they yeah. give you, uh, you know, the op their catalyst. They let you step temporarily out of your reference frame and and examine phenomenon and maybe yourself if you're you know in the therapeutic context but exa just examine phenomenon in a novel way that's why you know Carrie Mullis and and James uh, Crick and uh, 
and uh, Steve Jobs and all these people had these wonderful creative ideas because they were cognitive uh, catalysts in a certain way, you know, and, and there's nothing uh, delusional about it, right? I mean, their insights were valid. I mean, they had them on the drug, but then they could go back and say, well, yeah, this actually holds up. And uh, I, think that, uh, I think that that is one of the applications of psychedelics, not strictly therapeutic. They give us a different way to view the world and understand phenomena. So they're, you could almost think of them as they're like a scientific instrument in a certain way. What, what do you think about microdosing? And, I mean, there, there's a huge thing. I, I've talked about it pretty openly there's a huge thing happening in Silicon Valley now as an extension of smart drugs mm-hmm. uh, where people are microdosing either mushrooms or LSD at very low dose every single day or every third day for for mm-hmm. substantial periods of time, like a month at a time. Uh, what's, uh, what's your take on that? Well, I have a number of uh, different perspectives on it. I have to say I have not microdosed, so I don't okay. really have the benefit of experience, but you know, sometimes uh, on the one hand, I think, well, microdosing is fine, but are these people who are afraid to, you know, go the full Monty? I mean, you've got to learn things from a microdose. Imagine how much more you might learn if you actually took a full dose, you know, in a proper set- yeah. setting. So that's one thing. The other thing I am, I can, I wonder about sometimes is the psychedelics produce tolerance very readily. So that's one of the things they do, rapidly produce tolerance. So if you take a microdose every day, by the fourth day, it's not going to have much of an effect, uh, at least in terms of what we understand from, you know, what we know about the pharmacology of these things. You know, and then the other, you know, and, and ultimately my, my other position is, well, you know, if people want to microdose, they feel a benefit from it. Let them do it. Why not? You know, I mean, it's, but I I generally think that, you know, people's relationship to these substances should be, should be as unregulated as possible. You know, education, not, not prohibition or, you know, is the answer. People should do what they do based on a sound, uh, you know, based on informed decisions, basically. my, my perspective there is really straightforward. Like, it's my biology, and I'll do with it what I want. And anyone yeah. who thinks they have a right to tell me what I'm allowed to do with my body is basically declaring war on me, and yeah. they, can, they can die. I totally agree. <laughs> and and, and I think, come back. Like, we could do a karmic dance or whatever, but, like, don't mess with these cells. They're mine. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. If I could, uh, maybe it's come up on your show already, but another, another organization I love to get, put a plug in sure. for is uh, Arrowwood. Dot org. Oh, yeah. Great site. Okay. Yeah. E-R-O-W-I-D. Yeah. <laughs> Best online resource on psychoactive drugs of all kinds. Wonderful people. Uh, Earth and Fire, Arrowwood are great. And if you're going to mess with these drugs, you know, bookmark that one and go check it out before you take anything new. I mean, it's solid information. So, And, and, and there's no need. Like, like there's a... There's a crazy segment of society 
who will be like, oh, I, I took my Robitussin cough medicine and I distilled it and I poured butane in it and I extracted the DM and I injected it with a, a you know a tuning fork and, and you're like, okay, guys, like chill. That is not necessary for you to explore your consciousness and it's not safe. Yeah. But I, I love it that Airwood's willing to write it down, let people talk about it and just have a dialogue. But like, don't go nuts. Like there's plenty yeah. of, of very potent, powerful things you can do without... Uh, without hairspray in it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, my position is, well, stick with the plants. You know you know what you're getting. And they're coming out of uh, a long tradition of use. I mean, yeah, of course, you can, you can work with synthetics, and LSD is a, yeah. a semi-synthetic compound. But by and large, I mean, this whole designer drug area you know, uh, they gave Earth and Fire gave a wonderful talk on this area, this this whole designer drug phenomenon at a conference I was at recently. There, you, it's impossible to know what you're getting. You know, if you have a plant, you probably know what you're getting, especially if you grew it yourself. <laughs> if you grew it yourself, but even then, there, there's different strains. Like different strains of Absolutely. pot can do radically different things. And then right. you get like storage and processing. You get moldy pot. You know what? It, it doesn't do the same thing as, as good pot. It, it smells no. bad. But it, so so there, there's there's variance there. And and one of the things is you cultivate awareness. Like okay, that didn't work very well. Even though I thought it was going to, I'm not going to do that again. Right. But to, to circle back on the microdosing thing, when uh, a uh, uh, a friend uh, microdosed uh, LSD every day for uh, for thirty days. Um, the experience uh, that I heard about <laughs> was uh, uh, similar to like one of the the racetams, but there was not a tolerance uh, that that mm. happened at all at very low doses, like five percent of a of a normal uh, full uh, tab. Yeah. So well, that's possible. Yeah. It it was uh, it, it was pretty pretty interesting and definitely increasing creativity and especially around words. Uh, the ability mm-hmm. to associate words, find words better, mm-hmm. uh, but it, it was pretty darn easy. You know, you, you you go a little bit heavy, and you're kind of feeling a little more open than you really should be, and you probably <laughs> you're probably not as funny as you think you are. Uh, right, right, <laughs> kind of perspective. Right. Uh, are you that, ready for that board meeting in five minutes? If you're, yeah, I know it's it's that may or may <laughs> that may or may not have happened <laughs> uh, right. on stage at some point with this friend of mine. Uh, so. <laughs> Uh, it, that that sort of thing is is a risk, but I I do believe that if you're working in a cognitive profession, uh, where creativity and uh, and association and and making new things mm-hmm. uh, is is part of what uh, part of what you do, there's probably a great uh, there's probably a great argument as a, as a cognitive enhancing strategy entirely different from healing trauma from hallucinogen things. Right. Uh, and it's it's just not well explored at all, and I'd no. I'd like it. I'd like to see that explored more. Well, I think it is being explored. Yeah. I mean, it, it definitely is being explored unofficially, and uh, you know, like you say, many people in Silicon Valley are doing this. So eventually, there probably will be a clinical study. There may already be clinical studies to kind of put some some data behind this and see is this a real effect? Does it improve cognitive function? Uh, I might mention uh, just in connection with this, uh, you know, when we when we did this uh, this bio biomedical study, excuse me, this biomedical study of ayahuasca back in the '90s with the UDV, 
the one of the churches down there in Brazil, uh, we administered a battery, a number of different psychological tests, and compared those to controls. Among the things we measured were uh, verbal and cognitive ability, a recall, uh, you know, memory functions, and all that. The members of the UDV were better than controls. I mean, wow. they were statistically better, not not greatly, you know, not a huge effect, but enough to uh, show statistically that, and you know, the question we were trying to answer was not, are they better? We, we were trying, what we were wondering is, are they worse? Are they impaired by their lifelong use of ayahuasca? No indication at all that they were impaired either mentally or physically. They are remarkable people. Uh, you know, and they, some of the people in our cohort, in our study cohort, have been taking ayahuasca every two weeks for 40 years and with, you know, in excellent me mental and physical health. So I actually think it has a, a lot of physical as well as uh, psychological benefits. It, it, it seems to. I, I know uh, a leader in the, the personal development field uh, who's done uh, 70 journeys. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, pretty darn substantial number of journeys, given that you you throw up for each of them. <laughs> yeah. That's a non-trivial commitment, right? Right. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, he does it because it uh, it works. Right? Yeah, and, and there's that's how I feel too. I I mean, I've learned so much from from this medicine. You know, I think that uh, the you know, the indigenous people have it right. These are teachers, you know. You learn from them. They have a tremendous amount of wisdom. They don't talk to you like you and I are talking, but there is a transfer of information and there's a learning process that goes on. So, you know, who knows? To, to say that takes a, a certain amount of courage because there are a group of people who will reflexively say, that's crazy talk. And, and here's the deal. I don't care if someone thinks it's crazy talk. Like if it added value to you mm -hmm. <laughs> and you think it made you a better person or it, it improved the quality of your life or your thinking or something else, good. Right. <laughs> and it doesn't matter if people think it's crazy talk. Right. Uh, if, and, if it, and generally people that, the people that say that, they'll reflexively say that, they obviously haven't had the experience. <laughs> so, it, you know, yeah. I mean, that's, that's also one of the great things about psychedelics that I often talk about you don't have to have faith. You don't have to have any belief. You have to have courage. That's all Ooh. you need is the courage to drink the cup or smoke the pipe or whatever. Have the experience and make of it what you will. Yeah. Don't believe Terrence McKenna or Dennis McKenna or Andy Weil or any of these people. You know, God gave you an analytical brain. You can figure this stuff out for yourself. But you must have... The experience, and if you want to make a pronouncement about it before you've had the experience, I'm sorry. Why should I listen to you? You're not qualified to comment. That's my position. <laughs> uh, very, very well said. The true scientist is probably going to experiment a little bit and see if it uh, and see what it does. Given that the harm appears to be pretty darn low. Pretty darn low. Uh, well, well, Dennis, it, it's been an amazing pleasure to have you on uh, on Bulletproof Radio. And there's a question I, I'd like to ask you that I've asked all of the guests on the show. Okay. And it's, uh, if, if someone came to you tomorrow and said, look, based on everything you've seen and experienced and done in your life, uh, uh, I want your advice. I, 
I want to be better at every single thing I do. Like I want to kick more ass at life. What are the three most important things I need to know? What would you say? To get more out of life? Well, just, just to, to be better at everything. First of all, you know, never, never forget how little you know. <laughs> I think we touched on this before, which I don't think of as a depressing thing. I think of it as yeah. a joyous thing. Because if you like to learn, there's so much for you to learn. So try to keep your... Keep the attitude of a child, you know, keep your, your curiosity, because the world is a marvelous place, and we only understand part of it. So that's, that's a big one right there. Second one, don't take yourself too seriously. Don't take anybody else too seriously. Keep your sense of humor. I mean, that's an important one. You know, we don't understand much, and we're just sort of along for the ride, so you know, why the frowny face? I mean, we have good reason to, uh, you know, to be curious and, and to enjoy life and enjoy each other. And uh, <laughs> the third one, well, I guess I guess mainly, probably, and I, I you know, as a person, I, I don't practice this as much as I should, but the third one is, you know, be, guard your health. You know, stay as healthy as you can in mind and body. Uh, that's the most important thing you have, you know, uh, and that and the people you love. So, you know, we are along for the ride. We're having a hell of a ride. Uh, so keep yourself in shape so that you can enjoy the ride, you know. And like I say, I, I should do this. I should take that advice more <laughs> to heart, but I do my best. <laughs> Uh, you, you, you're living a good life, that's for sure. I am very lucky in that way. Dennis, thanks a lot for being on, uh, on Bulletproof Radio. Your book is The Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss, and it's available on Amazon and Apple Amazon stores. and from the website of the same name, brotherhoodofthescreamingabyss.com. All right. Uh, you could get a signed copy there. Amazon doesn't do signed copies, but either place, there's Kindle edition, yeah, so thank you for letting me mention that. Oh, uh, of course. Are there any other URLs or resources you'd like to direct people to? Uh, Bulletproof readers love to read books. They, uh, well, they, the, uh, uh, the other one, of course, is, uh, you know, we mentioned arrowwood.org, mm -hmm. but also Hefter, Hefter Research Institute, which is hefter.org. H-E-F-F-T-E-R. -E -E We're okay. a nonprofit. We've been around 20 years, and in many ways... Hefter is leading the sort of the charge when it comes to uh, developing some of these therapeutic protocols. MAPS is very focused on MDMA, and Hefter's kind of focused on, uh, on uh, psilocybin, not because okay. we planned it that way. It just happens to be good for <laughs> many things. I guess right. the third thing I, I could mention, I won't say much about it, but I... I've started a uh, I've started a startup company now with mm -hmm. finally have formed an alliance with some friends who actually understand business which I don't <laughs> but they've taken that part over and so we have a startup company that we're very optimistic about and it's called Symbio S Y M B I O Symbio Life Sciences uh, and hopefully you'll be hearing more about it. <laughs> Excellent. So 
brotherhoodoftheScreamingAbyss.com, irawid.org, and symbio.com. Symbiolifesciences.com. No. Symbiolifesciences.com. All right, we'll put all those in the show notes for you in case you're driving and you don't want to get a ticket because you just tried to type that into your phone while you ran into the guy in front of you. So you don't yes, have to do don't that. do that. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right, David. It's been a real pleasure. You're you're a wonderful interviewer. Uh, hey. I've really enjoyed this. I hope we can circle back on this one of these days. It's been thanks, fun. Dennis. You're always welcome to come back on the show. Okay, thank you. If you enjoyed today's show, you know what to do. Head on over and pick up a copy of Dennis's book because, well, it's a fun read and you'll probably learn something. And please also do uh, heed the multiple warnings that both of us talked about here. Don't play around with this stuff if you decide to do it. No, it's probably illegal where you live. I don't know where you live. There's a global audience for this. Uh, and it also can be dangerous and people can take advantage of you and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but it also can have some profound healing. So find people you trust if you're going to do it and uh, obey all local laws, regulations, talk to your doctors and do all the other kind of stuff you're supposed to do. <laughs> have an awesome day. Thanks for watching. Don't miss out. To keep getting great videos like this to help you kick more ass at life, subscribe to the Bulletproof YouTube channel at bulletproofexec.com slash YouTube and stay bulletproof. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.